Hi, I'm Carmen LeBurge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge. Your daily encouragement that God has the world in the hollow of his hand. This is Mornings with Carmen LeBurge on Faith Radio. If we're Good morning once again, everyone, part of the Faith Radio family. This is Mornings with Carmen. It is the Mornings Without Carmen version. Peter Kapsner filling in for one day as Carmen will be back in the host chair tomorrow morning. Love starting the day with all of you. We fix our eyes on Jesus together. We talk about things through a Christian worldview. Uh, so many of the different topics that uh, can get covered on a day-in and day-out basis. Paul Perot in studio as the producer does, as always, a great job getting the entire show ready with all of the headlines uh, that we're going to talk about. Good morning again, Paul. Good morning. Uh, it's been fun to talk a little bit about uh, the annual hot dog eating contest yes. that happens every July 4th. And Joey Chestnut has been the long-running champion 15 years now. He's been champ of hot dogs uh, I don't think contest. he did a consecutive 15 I don't think years. so either. I think, but, I think, I think it was disrupted yeah, in there. He's still 15 times world champion hot dog eater. Yeah. Yeah, anybody that can eat over 60 hot dogs in a 10-minute span is probably going to be the world champion of something. And fight off a protester yeah, in the he process. Yeah, he did. It was uh, quite comical yesterday <laughs> to watch a protester take the stage in a Darth Vader match. And, and, and Joey Chestnut um, managed to take a, the, the briefest of pauses from his hot dog eating to put the Darth Vader protester into a semi-chokehold, dropping into the ground before the, the police could come in and, and take the protester away. And he went immediately back without breaking stride. Yeah, I don't know really. what I mean, he didn't break. He just went right back to the hot dogs. Yes, the force is strong with this one. <laughs> it clearly was. And it, it brought up a question for me in terms of the impact of 60 hot dogs on uh, one's digestion and, and the whole system there and how that might work. And so who better than our first guest this morning to bring in a little bit early than Dr. Brett Nix of the Christian Medical and Dental Association? Because I'm really confused about how a human being can handle 60 hot dogs in 10 minutes. Good morning, Brett. Hey, good morning. Yeah, I don't know the question or the answer for that as it, as, it, as it relates. You know, it's fascinating about Chestnut. In his lifetime, he has eaten over 20,000 hot dogs. <laughs> now, of course, isn't that amazing? He will actually keep track of these types of things. And he says, as you can tell, he still has a passion for the event, not just for eating, but also for attacking Darth Vader, which is amazing. <laughs> yes. But let's talk, about, let's talk about the body here. I mean, really, if you were to ask him, what happens, of course, he primes his body. So he goes through these episodes where when he eats, he's allowed, allowing his body to, to distend, his stomach to expand in ways that each one of us can't. I mean, think about your worst Thanksgiving Day adventure when you've <laughs> overeaten and how you feel. Your body's distended, you're exhausted. You go down and you lay down on the couch with everyone else and you watch football, uh, and then you go into this coma. Well, you know, he describes this for himself, which is after I've eaten 60 hot dogs, he says, I turn into a human sweating machine. He says, my body just horribly, horribly sweats. So he has all this diaphoresis. And a lot of that is because of the distension. But more importantly, it's because all the blood of the body is now going to the digestive tract to accommodate all of this food that he has. And he says, in general, it takes him two, if not three days to feel back to normal. And during that time, <laughs> he, he continues to hydrate. He, he pretty much goes on a fast. Uh, so this is not a normal thing for our body. This is not a feast or famine process, although that's what it looks like. Uh, but suffice it to say, that's an enormous amount of calories. Uh, the level of activity needed for the body is tremendous. But imagine the strain that it goes on. And he's a he's a a younger individual. 
if you are older and you have vascular disease and other things, that actually puts you at risk for uh, for episodes related to your heart and other parts of your body. So it's quite a fascinating process. Because Brett, is the size of a stomach? If I said tennis ball, softball, volleyball, basketball, like what's what is the the typical size of the stomach? In well, it terms- depends on where you live in the world. If you're American, look at the average look at the average size of our meal when you go out to eat. Uh, that is what trains your stomach to mm. go ahead and have an average size. If you are a small meal portion frequently, your stomach size is going to end up being quite a bit smaller. Uh, but in general, what you'll end up finding is if you were to take your two hands together and put them together uh, at, a, at a collapsed state, that's about the size of a natural stomach. So it's not that large. But imagine 60 hot dogs. Uh, <laughs> the other thing that they say is that he must have an enormous capacity for what we call stomach clearance. So his ability to clear his stomach uh, is probably at a faster rate than the average individual. <laughs> I find that as I get older, Brad, it seems like it probably takes somewhere in the neighborhood of three to four months to clear my stomach these days. So we're going to need more of your kind of help and advice. Paul Perot and I are putting our fists together in studio to try to figure out the size of the stomach. It, it was quite the event yesterday. We'll take a short pause and come back, and we're going to talk a little bit about the ongoing impact of marijuana as it's being legalized in, in increasing ways. And in its usage, Brad has seen some things at Ground Zero in the emergency room about the negative impact of that. Again, this is Mornings with Carmen and this is Faith Radio. Just about 11 minutes past the top of the hour, we've already been chatting with Dr. Brett Nix of the Christian Medical and Dental Association. And uh, Brett, I've been watching some of the show Stranger Things uh, with my daughter. I can't necessarily recommend this show. She's 20 years old. It's uh, disturbing, but uh, it's quite well written as well. And of course, so many people are watching it. So it's nice to be dialed into as to what they're watching. But the point of that is in the most recent episode I watched, it's uh, set in the 1980s. Two of the characters of the last episode were what we would have called in the 1980s stoners. They would have been regularly taking marijuana throughout the day. And there was sort of this whole vibe, almost a Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure kind of vibe. There was a way of life. And, and clearly they, they were diminished in their ability to interact with other people. Um, they, they, uh, they just didn't seem to have a, a lot of mental acuity. It's, it was just really interesting how it was being written. But now we see this legalization of marijuana and, and young people are increasingly sort of blase about it. They're, of course, I mean, like, why wouldn't you take it? It's just really interesting to see the shift. And we're not talking a lot about the negative impact of that. What are you seeing in your practice? You know, it's really interesting. Now, recognize I work in the emergency department, so I end up seeing the mishaps and the misadventures of a lot of different things. But one of the things you'll notice, uh, and I, I practice in North Carolina where marijuana is not legal, uh, but you see the different aspects of THC and the different types of uh, over-the-counter types of use, if you will. You look at states, California, Colorado, and many of the others uh, that have free open access to edibles, to different types of THC. We have to recognize something, first of all, which is when you look at uh, the availability, what it was back in the 80s as it relates to uh, the Stranger Things opening, uh, the concentration is very, very different. But you also find people doing unique things and, and perhaps mixing different chemicals, lacing it with other aspects but what we know to be true about marijuana is that the long-term use of it uh, is linked to mental illness in some people. Now, there are some people individually with just the way their bodies are created, the way that they're, they're navigated, their, their brain, the wiring of their brain is, is uh, at risk. Uh, and when they have different types of chemicals, marijuana being one of them, you know, other types of misadventures, uh, they create this temporary hallucinatory process. They become paranoid. Uh, and for some, it triggers an episode into that mental health area uh, of schizophrenia. 
And so you will have in, uh, individuals who have never used a substance uh, before that all of a sudden get, get marijuana with high levels of THC, and it triggers their brain uh, to go ahead and step into a mental health breakdown, and they're never the same. And so, you know, in the emergency department, of course, I see these misadventures when they're linked with perhaps cocaine use and alcohol. Uh, and while marijuana is the most commonly illegally used substance in the U.S., it continues to grow in the states that we're now starting to see issues uh, with uh, it being uh, no longer legal, Ill illegal, but becoming legalized. And so, you know, brain health, mental health, athletic performance, driving capacity, all of these things are detrimental in this space. And is there any um, reason or rationale for real restricted use in terms of any medicinal benefits? I mean, I do hear a lot about the anti-inflammatory effects or the ability to dull some of the pain maybe of people that have a terminal cancer. Is is there merit for this? Because I, it seems like we're confusing the issues uh, and making it just recreationally legal. That's very different than maybe a very restricted medicinal use. Well, you're right. And when you look at the studies related to it, there are specific restrictions re related to the medicinal use and the frequency of it. And recognizing even with medicinal use, you'll hear for people that have you know horrible pain, maybe even bad issues with nausea and cancer, that sometimes uh, marijuana will actually help in that. There are also things where we look at the cannabinoid, which is the chemical within this uh, cyclical vomiting syndrome. So those who have been using it all of a sudden now have this intractable vomiting process. So instead of making their nausea work better, it actually makes their situation worse. And they come in with the inability of keeping anything on their stomach. But one thing that's really important to recognize is, you know, as we are stepping into its use, there's a couple of things that people have to understand. And we've had this substantial issue within our country related to addiction, especially around the opioid epidemic over the last several decades. But approximately one in 10 of people who use marijuana become addicted to it. And recognizing the higher level of THC, the higher the risk for dementia, the higher the risk for psychiatric issues. But what we found is that when they start before the age of 18, the rate of addiction actually rises to one in six. Mm -hmm. And so we're looking at a huge wave of people who are stepping into this saying, hey, you know, if it's being legal, legalized, it's probably okay recognizing that we probably fully don't understand the underlying uh, dangers associated or the ramifications because the concentration is becoming much greater than it was in the past. Yeah, one more question on this, Dr. Nix. And do we have um, any sorts of, of data yet or data points about how it might impact somebody who starts at, say, the age of 17, about what their life is likely to be like at the age of 27, some 10 years in, if they regularly are partaking of marijuana? Because we have that data for alcohol, for example. We know its impact on the liver and other bodily systems, do we have any of that data coming out? Because it just seems like there should be uh, warning points uh, along the way here. Well, you know, we, I don't think we have really great data in part because a lot of the legalization at, at, uh, in many of the states is really in its infancy at this point. But what we do know to be true is that there are studies that link marijuana to depression, to anxiety, uh, to suicidality, and these psychiatric episodes we've talked about. But we also know that long-term use uh, integrates in issues with relationship problems, worse educational outcomes, and lower career achievement. Uh, and so all of these things are, are concerning when you look at the struggles we're having in society right now, the polarization of things. Uh, but at the same time, if we are looking at young individuals who are engaging this on a chronic level, if this is going to impact their capacity to engage in society uh, and be fully engaged and participatory, uh, it begs a question as to which direction we're going as a country. And uh, it obviously drives substantial concerns on many ways. Mm. So voice of Dr. Brett Nexi is with the Christian Medical and Dental Association. And Brett, when we come back in a minute, let's talk a little bit about monkeypox and, and where that epidemic, it's probably not an epidemic yet, but it, it could become that, is in terms of the stages, as well as a bit about the abortion pill and chemical abortions, which undoubtedly are going to be on the rise post Roe versus Wade.
Welcome back to Mornings Without Carmen. We're talking with Dr. Brett Nix from the Christian Medical and Dental Association. And Brett, uh, I, tell me a little bit about what's happening with uh, monkeypox in the headlines. I know it emerged maybe, I don't know, six-ish weeks ago or so. Is this going to be a little bit flash in the pan? Does it have some staying power? Where are we at in the cycle? Yeah, you know, I tell you, when we look at all the issues we've been seeing over the last couple of years with uh, with viruses and epidemics and pandemics, you know, we see monkeypox come on the scene. And, you know, we have to understand, if we go back historically, we remember uh, the dialogue, especially for those of us that are a little bit older, around smallpox. And, of course, that, you know, immunization processing stopped in the U.S. in the 1970-71 era. Uh, but recognize it's similar to smallpox, except for it just has much milder symptoms. You know, people that get it, they're going to have fevers and headaches and the muscle aches, the fatigue. But then you start getting this characteristic rash that people see. And, you know, while historically it would go through several stages, you look at these little discoloration patches that you would have that become raised bumps, turn into blisters and um, and move into uh, different areas that start to go ahead, become pus filled. Eventually the scabs will fall off. Um, what happens at this point is we're seeing a little bit of a change. And that change that we're seeing is these rashes, while historically would tend to erupt around the face, we're starting to see more around the, the oral mucosa. But. You know, in the population where uh, we have men who have sex with men, there's a lot of issues around the genital space. And that's something that's differentiating this uh, epidemic from a lot of the other things that we have seen. Uh, because what we end up finding now is there is a isolated patient population, very similar to what we saw with the HIV outbreaks in the 80s, that is precluded to a certain population that are at risk. And the reason being for this is many times uh, the pox virus is pr present with the fevers, the myalgias, just not visible. And so, unfortunately, it's spreading like wildfire in that population base. But across a generalized population, because it is so contagious, we're seeing a slow uptick uh, across the U.S. And as you've seen, state-to-state -state reporting numbers continue to increase. Yeah, I think uh, you've highlighted something that uh, a lot of people don't necessarily want to talk about, but is a really important piece of this monkeypox conversation. And that is that there's been specific warnings given to the gay community in terms of their, their sexual interactions being able to transmit the monkeypox virus um, much more prevalently. But uh, the, the church, I remember having been around in the 80s and 90s when, it, when we were talking about the HIV AIDS crisis, it, there were some people that were public figures within Christendom that were saying this really was God's judgment and it was unnatural. And, and like I, as a person who believes firmly in male and female um, sexuality within the context of marriage only, there's really good reason for that. Um, I think at the same time that anybody who might have the impulse to say, well, here we go again, we probably need to avoid that kind of conversation. Well, I think what it brings forward is, is the simple recognition that uh, certain activities increase risk for certain things. And as we look at uh, the ability to get infectious disease processing, this is something that's true. And irrespective of gender identity, sexual orientation, we have to recognize that regardless of who you are, you can actually get and spread monkeypox. But what we are seeing is amongst the gay, bisexual, and men who have sex with men orientation, these are the areas that are at high risk right now. And you know, when we look at the spectrum, what are we talking about total numbers? Well, recognize the number of cases that are uh, reported is probably far less than what's present. But even still, as of the last week of June or so, we're looking around you know, 4,000 to 4,500 cases reported in 47 countries across the world. So not a massive number by any stretch, uh, but again, recognizing this is something that was very rare and isolated in pockets, mostly in areas around uh, in, in Africa where it was first identified. Uh, but now we're starting to see things as we saw with COVID that ask the question about the ability of things to go ahead and jump continents, uh, but also as it relates to it, the underlying issue as far as our exposure and our risk. Hmm. Turning the conversation back towards abortion, which is still top of the mind 
for so many of us, uh, even as we see that the legality of abortion and those decisions being returned to the states from the federal government, uh, even if a state decides to ban the procedure of abortion within the clinic itself, there's quite a bit of controversy about what to do with the, with the morning after pill, these abortion pills or chemical abortions. What, what do you see in the future related to these topics? Boy, I tell you, you know, when you look at Roe versus Wade and you look at the the ability of the federal government to go ahead and reverse and then say to the states, OK, now you need to figure out how to uh, interpret and to put this process in place. You know, as an emergency physician, the one thing that comes to mind is the simple recognition that uh, it's of great value when you look at how to interpret these laws uh, to the safety of the patient. Uh, and one of the challenges we all recognize is uh the process of childbirth, the process of conception is an incredibly natural process, and it's incredibly amazing that God created it the way he did. But we do also recognize that things along the lines of an ectopic pregnancy, which is a, a term where uh, you have an egg and a sperm uh, that is fertilized, is moving forward, but for whatever reason, it doesn't migrate fully into the uterus and it stops short. It gets stuck in, in the, uh, the fallopian tubes or some other space along those lines. That puts the, uh, the mother at risk because that uh, pregnancy will not go to full term. The baby will not survive. Neither will the mother if it's not identified. And so, you know, when we look at these laws, we have things around ectopic pregnancy that have to be part of the discussion here for the mother's safety, uh, knowing full well that that child will not uh, will, will not survive either. Uh, then you get into the steps of things where you have the conversation about the morning after pill, the abortion pill, and these are medications like uh, mifepristone and uh, misoprostol, the things that are common. Uh, what you've seen are for those states that have them available, a lot of online searches, the ability for people to order them to have them available. And what that medication does, it makes the lining of the uterus uh, not suitable for that pregnancy as it's migrating to continue to develop, uh, to create the normal placenta and the process as it relates to it. And so, you know, right now, the, as we look at these, uh, we're going to end up finding that we have to probably take a, a, a deeper step into uh, how do we uh, legislate, how do we have dialogue around uh, the individuals that are at risk in this space, that are, that are, that are pregnant and asking the question, you know, what are my options? Uh, but I think we also have to come together as a community, which is to make sure that we are exploring that we have resources available for people when they ask those questions, that you come alongside them, that they see that the options that are available are, are ones of life and that these things are very much God-given uh, and that's the opportunity that we have, uh, we've created. I think that we are finding right now is that really over this coming year, uh, many states are going to try to have to uh, define in what this process looks like uh, because we have to take a very proactive stance rather than a responsive one. Uh, because if you're in the medical, medical community, you want to make sure that you're doing the best thing for your patient. And at the same point in time, because of the legal process, you also have to make sure that uh, you're protected. Uh, and right now, there are some states that struggle with identifying an ectopic pregnancy as something that a physician can go ahead and address. If we can't address that from a medical perspective, we're definitely not doing it from a humanistic perspective because the mother is also at risk. And so we're in the early stages. It's a great exploratory process. It's wonderful to be where we are, uh, but I do think that the states really need to step into this uh, for the benefit of, of our society and most importantly around life. Yeah, I think one more point. We just have about a minute left, Dr. Nix, but do you bring up miscarriages and ectopic pregnancies? I find that when that topic comes up, maybe in a community space, a small group space, that uh, this is a much more common experience than people tend to talk about. I would imagine you see a lot of the pain of miscarriages and ectopic pregnancies. And, and, it, and it is a place that we can really come around people pastorally because of so many families I know have had to deal with this. 
Absolutely. And I tell you, you know, one of the greatest challenges and one of the greatest joys that we have in life is around pregnancy. There are tremendous numbers of people who desire to have children but are struggling with pregnancy. Uh, then people that become pregnant, uh, they find out that their, their, their pregnancy is positive. They're exciting, uh, excited toward the, the future of what that might be. Uh, but miscarriages happen, and that's just where the developmental process, whatever it be related to the developing uh, baby, whether it be relationship with the uterus itself, uh, it doesn't work. And then they have a miscarriage. They have, you know, the, the passage of the, of, of the young embryo, the young baby as it's developing uh, in this process. It is tremendously difficult for individuals. A friend of mine just went through this uh, and is now several months later struggling with this uh, around that whole process of I lost my child uh, and recognizing that with that process also comes some of these surgeries to ensure that the uterus is uh, back to its normal state to allow that person to then potentially get pregnant again. Uh, if we ban that type of a surgery, that person who had a miscarriage cannot get back to a normal state and actually puts them at risk for infection and other things. So we really have to make sure that we understand the terms that we're using, the circumstances that we're talking about, uh, because this is a very real situation uh, that is faced by many. I appreciate all the insight into so many of these different health topics. Dr. Nix, have a great rest of the day. Thank you. Appreciate being here and have an awesome fifth. I appreciate that. Well, let us listen to Breakpoint up next. Take a bottom of the hour break and preview what is our last conversation around discovering your gifts. This is a Well, it's definitely time to fire up that text line because our next guest, uh, Pastor Don Everett, we're going to be talking about a book that he has made uh, four copies of the book and the workbook available for all of us. It's going to be about discover your gifts. You can text the word book to 877-933-2484. Once again, 877-933-2484. Text the word book. And we've got a copy of a book and a workbook uh, to put you in the drawing for, I think, four copies in total. And uh, he's got quite the online gift inventory as well that you can take just immediately. I've been on that here during the break, Paul Perot, and it's become quite clear that I don't really have any gifts. So I'm curious about what Don would say about that. Mm, he, he said that uh, they have research on your type. <laughs> people people yeah, like yeah. me. Well, if you're worried that you might not have a gift, you're going to want to listen in next uh, because uh, Pastor Don Everts is going to take us in to that conversation to knowing what our spiritual gifts might be. Welcome back to Mornings with Carmen here on the 5th of July. I'm Peter Kapsner filling in for today. Carmen will be back in the host chair tomorrow, getting an extra day off as part of the July 4th holiday. And we're joined by author and pastor Don Everts. You can uh, text the word book to 877-933-2484, and you'll be put into a drawing for four copies of his book and the adjoining workbook, Discover Your Gifts. Good morning, Don. Good morning. Good to be with you. Yeah, you too. I know uh, just talking a little bit off the air about the idea of gifts in general, but I think maybe a starting place, and I appreciate where you start with this, is that maybe a lot of people don't feel like they even just are a gift in general, and, and yet everybody really is a gift. So start there with us and, and why you, you introduce this idea as part of discovering your gifts. Yeah, you know, part of what we explore in the book uh, alongside the research is what does the Bible have to say about humans? kind of a biblical anthropology, if you will. And one of the things that we find in the scripture is that every single human being is made by God. Everyone is a son of Adam or a daughter of Eve, and they're created by God. And the scripture tells us that he's good at that. 
<laughs> that, that everyone, you know, to use David's language, is fearfully and wonderfully made. Everyone is knit together by God. And that's such an important starting place for us, because I think oftentimes, even as believers, we tend to focus in on the fact that everyone is fallen, and we know that's true, and everyone can find redemption through Jesus. And so we focus on fall and redemption, which actually is a pretty good place to focus. But sometimes we lose sight of the fact that the biblical story begin, is broader and starts sooner than that, before the fall uh, is the creation, and that God continues to be the creator of every human being, and he's good at that. And so it tells us, like, as a starting point, even before we take an inventory or think about the different gifts or aptitudes we may have, is that we're all a gift, that we're all imbued with dignity and agency and beauty by our good creator. That's part of his common grace uh, that God the Father uh, gives on everyone, whether they're a believer or not. And so that, in terms of understanding ourselves, how we are made, understanding our neighbors, how they are made by God, that's a really important starting place for for everyone to start from that sense that I am a gift. I'm a gift given to the world. I'm made by a good God. uh, And he's done a good job making me. And that just that one little biblical truth is so important and can, you know, counter a lot of the like low self-esteem and self-hatred and a lot of the weird things that many of us carry through life and that keep us from living life as God would have us. Yeah, Don, I don't think you can emphasize enough that as a starting point uh, about the essential goodness of human beings, meaning that we come from the hand of a good God. Therefore, we are created beautiful and lovely and and good, as the Bible would talk about. And that does not at all diminish the impact of sin in our life. I think one of the analogies that I've heard that I've really appreciated over the years is that um, a, a plant may have a disease, and in fact, often will have a disease, and that disease is running roughshod through the plant. It's causing holes in the leaves. It's causing yellowing of the stem. It really is disfiguring the plant. But if you don't take a careful, critical look at it, you're going to assume that the plant and the disease are one and the same. And really what Mm -hmm. you're talking about is a disease that is foreign to the plant, but it is infecting the plant. And so to start from the idea that human beings coming from the hand of God, good, but all of us are born in the shadows uh, of a disease of sin that is disfiguring us. Uh, parsing that out is really important because it does change how we see one another as opposed to just these depraved monsters. We see one another through the lens as people who have been inflicted with a disease and thus need restoration. That's exactly right. And and it, that can help heal how we see ourselves. And so dealing with issues of, you know, self-hatred, how we feel about ourselves. And that can also help correct how we see other people as well. Talking with uh, pastor and author Don Everts this morning, we have a book, Discover Your Gifts, with a workbook. Uh, The complimentary accessory is part of that. That is available as part of our giveaway. You can text the word book to 877-933-2484. And Don, I've been online on your inventory uh, to to determine some of your aptitudes or gifts, and I've discovered that I have none. What would you say at this point? (laughs) (laughs) I would say you're rare uh, in that you're probably kind of humbly self-deflecting. We we did we we did this nationwide nationwide research with the Barna Group on gifts. How do people discover their gifts? How aware of their gifts are they? Um, How do they go about discovering them? How do they develop their gifts, etc.? And uh, we found many, many interesting things. One of the things we did find uh, is that 3.5% of all people in America say that they 
have no gifts or that they have no gifting that they can identify. It's a very small percentage, thankfully, <laughs> that you're a part of. Um, but we did learn some interesting things by cutting the research uh, crossways. You know, do those 3.5% have anything in common with each other? Uh, and we did find some interesting things there. Uh, we, we found that in general, uh, the 3.5% of us who can identify no gift uh, within themselves are fairly cut off from other people. So, so some examples, a large portion of this kind of no gift group has not been to church in the last six months. About half of this group says they don't know any of their neighbors. Uh, they're less likely than the average person to have never worked on a community project. Uh, they don't feel that they have a sense of community in their life. So we don't have a causation. We don't prove that in the research, but there is a correlation between being disconnected from the people around you and not having a sense of your own gifts, which I think is a fascinating insight to part of how we discover our gifts is not in a vacuum, but we discover our gifts in community, right? That we have other people point things out. Hey, when you did this, you know, there was disproportionate fruit. Hey, you're really good at this. And sometimes we can be blind to our own gifts. And so we need not just an inventory, which, you know, we created a fabulous inventory. It's totally free online, but we all, we need to interact with that in the midst of friends and mentors and people at our church and with neighbors and that's really how people discover their gifts, which is a great starting point to using them. Yeah, the inventory that you described that I've been on this morning as well can be found at hopefulneighborhood.org backslash every gift. And we'll post this on the show page notes as well. But one more time, a gift inventory at hopefulneighborhood.org backslash Every gift. And Don, I want to return to the community dimension of the exercise yeah. of our gifts. But before we go there, um, do you make some distinctions between maybe aptitudes that God has given us and, and gifts in, in that area versus spiritual gifts? Uh, do they work together? Or how do you see the difference or similarity between aptitudes and spiritual gifts? That's a great question. So spiritual gifts are so important, right? These are special enablements that believers are given by the Holy Spirit. And, and Paul says you should not be uninformed about those, right? And so he teaches us about those. And so those are hugely important. In this book, we spend most of our time focusing on what we call common gifts or creational gifts. And so these are gifts, passions, aptitudes, skills, abilities, whether they're innate, whether they're acquired over time that everyone has, whether they are Christian or not. Uh, and part of why we focus uh, so much of our attention on those is our research revealed that most of the time, and I'm going to point my finger at pastors here, but it's being pointed at me too, okay? I am a pastor. <laughs> most of the time when pastors are talking about gifts or churches are focusing on gifts, it is spiritual gifts that we're focusing on. And there's a beauty to that, right? We're, we, we need to be thinking about those and mindful of those. But what the research revealed is that we are, on the whole, pastors and churches are doing that to the exclusion of common gifts. We have such a hyper-focus on not only spiritual gifts, but spiritual gifts that can be used to the benefit of the local church. So that's a very focused area, that we don't think about all these other beautiful gifts and abilities and passions that God has given us so that we will use them. And so that's why in the book itself, 
we spend a lot of time focusing on common gifts. That's why the Every Gift Inventory that you mentioned focuses on 12 gift areas that aren't spiritual gifts, uh, that are gifts that are available to all to everyone, believer or not. And it's just been, an, it's an area where we don't focus and we don't look at that. And so that's why in the research, we've paid attention to those because they're part of, you know, John Calvin, who was, you know, famous for seeing the fallenness and the disease of the plant, to use your great analogy from earlier. And even John Calvin, in reading the scriptures and reading Genesis, said every single human being is clothed and ornamented with excellent gifts. Mm. And that includes aptitudes, abilities, so communication gifts, leadership gifts, special technical gifts that we develop and learn over time. And so that's why in the book itself, we're trying to raise awareness and help people shine a light on the common gifts that they have uh, and that their neighbors may have as well. Talking again with Pastor Don Everts, I uh, wrote a book called Discover Your Gifts. It has a great workbook that goes along with it, as, lo- as well as an online gift inventory resource that you can go to anytime. It's free at hopefulneighborhood.org backslash every gift. Don, when we come back, I want to talk a little bit about the exercising our gifts within the community, how we can discover them there, the importance for life in the church, and even helping our young people discover what their gifts are early in life. This is Peter Kapsner, and you are listening to Faith Radio. Cause I'm just a nobody Trying to tell everybody All about somebody Who saved my soul Quite a few texts coming in. Fun to see. Again, we're talking to author and pastor Don Everts. Discover your gifts with an accompanying workbook. Uh, You can text the word book to 877-933-2484. And Don, you talked a little bit before this break about exercising gifts in the community. And that's such an important place to both discover your gifts, but also to recognize that within the Christian worldview, the gifts are actually meant for the betterment of the community, not just a process of self-discovery. So talk about the intersection of personal gifts with community exercise. Yeah, that's great. You, you know, we, we we have a real need to reclaim the biblical doctrine of vocation. Uh, and again, our research showed us that, like, for example, we asked pastors, um, how, would you agree or disagree with the statement? Uh, people in my church, in my congregation, are celebrated for using their gifts in the life of the congregation. And then we were also asked them to agree or disagree. People in my church are celebrated for using their gifts in the community. Uh, and, and the first question, uh, when people use gifts in our churches, we celebrate them. When they're using their gifts outside the context of the church, we're not talking about it. We're mm-hmm. not celebrating it. We're not lifting it up. So, again, that's on us as pastors for having kind of a, maybe a little too narrow uh, a view of vocation. You know, one, one of the great things that Luther did uh, in, in the Reformation was helping people rediscover the biblical doctrine of vocation, that it wasn't just you know, in his time, it was, well, the religious are the ones who have vocation. So priests and nuns and monks have vocation, and the rest of us don't. And there's kind of a two-class system. And, and, and Luther just said to the church, like, look at what the scripture says, that everyone is called, everyone is gifted, and everyone is called. And so we have vocations in our households. Uh, we have vocations, yes, in the church. We have vocations at our job. And we have vocations in the neighborhood and in, in, in the community. And Luther called people to take those seriously. And so that's part of what we're kind of reexamining in the book, too, is, well, God gives you gifts so that you will use them and not just in the church. And so we create a whole vocational map that helps people kind of ask questions about what are the different roles and relationships I have in life that I'm called to. 
And how do I use my gifts in those areas? And that is that that is has been so energizing for people to look at all of life uh, as a place where God wants to use them, and that He is He shaped them and given them gifts to use them uh, in their household, with their relatives, um, in their neighborhood. Uh, that's why this is a part of the, the hope, whole hopeful neighborhood uh, project that we've been doing. So so important that we begin to see all of life through a lens of the gifts God has given us and how he's called us to use those gifts to benefit the world around us and our household and our neighbors and the people at our job and at our church as well. I don't think you can emphasize that enough, Don, because if you get down to brass tacks and how this tends to play itself out, uh, we there's a lot of church leaders over the years that have been a part of and, and in church organizations where there there really is a desire to see people understand both their spiritual giftedness, but their aptitudes and, and God-given giftedness in the world. But in terms of the exercise of them, if the church is tending to gather primarily for one hour on the weekend and you start with announcements and then maybe have a yep. song and then maybe a few more songs and then some announcements and then you have a sermon and you go home, there there really isn't any space in that for a community of 100 or 200 or 500 people to exercise their gifts. So you're talking about the church equipping and empowering people for a whole life exercise of their God-given gifts, regardless of where they find themselves, and to really value that. That's right. You know, as Jesus put it, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. And what, what does that mean for us to be salt that helps slow down decay? What does that mean for us to be light that brings clarity into places of confusion? Uh, we should be doing that in the world. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and and looking at our gifts is this, it's 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 less like dutiful, like okay, I need to go do something, and it taps into this more beautiful motivation of God has made me a certain way, on purpose, and that makes us like, in, in my experience uh, in in teaching about this and exploring this with other people, it makes us like our backs get straighter, we sit up taller and realize, God has clothed and ornamented me with excellent gifts. Towards what end? And it becomes like we become rather than dutifully, well, I need to be doing something. It's like curiosity. How does God want to use me in the world? Uh, and that, I think, is part of the abundant life Jesus wants for us. Don, is it just for people of a certain age, 25, 30, 35, older, 55, 60? Can you help uh, young people, maybe as young yep. as 10, 12, 15, discover their gifts? And as somebody who maybe is 75 and thinks, boy, I've never really thought about my gifts yeah. before. This this spans all of the different demographics. It, it really does. And one of the fascinating things that our uh, research showed us uh, is that the younger generations, and, and I know every church is interested these days in like, how, how do we engage younger people? You know, the people who seem to be falling out of church, younger generations are more motivated and more interested in discovering their gifts than our people in older generations. And, and that could be for a variety of reasons. Those of us in older generations, maybe we've discovered our gifts. So we're focusing on mentoring others and helping them discover theirs. But one of the things the research told us is a huge opportunity area for churches uh, is that younger generations are super motivated to learn about themselves and discover their gifts, including, and this is kind of the crazy part, Peter, including non-Christians. Hmm. And non-Christians are even open, They in, in the research, indicated a relative openness to even have finding help discovering their gifts in the church. Well, and to find purpose. People are, are so desperate right. to find some kind of purpose, but I think there is that precursor or preliminary question before you can discover what your purpose is. And it really is helpful to define 
what you're good at from just, again, a God-given yeah. perspective. And, and I think for many people, they don't discover those things until later in life. But but young people are so hungry. I think all of us are hungry, yes. quite frankly, for purpose. And, and some of that is related to what our gifts are. Absolutely. And for whatever reason, you know, some of it is the things that come easier to us, we tend to overlook and we assume, well, that's easy for everyone. And that's why it's so important that we discover our gifts, take an inventory, talk with other people. I know from my, in my own journey that where I've had people who say to me, man, you know, you, you have these gifts, you have these gifts in teaching, you have these gifts in communicating, which I just assumed everyone was able to teach or communicate in the ways I was. And so we need other people to help us learn those things. The, the number one place that most people discover their gifts that the research showed us is among family and friends. Mm. Uh, but but right after that is the church. So actually, the church has been a place historically where people do have others come alongside them and say, hey, I, I think you're really good at this. Can we plug you in in this area? Can Can we use your gifts? And so I think this is a really this research for us and this kind of delving into what the Bible has to say about how humans are created is actually a really hopeful area. And and being in an age when, boy, a little bit of hope uh, goes a long way. Well, it's so fun to, to do this inventory that you provided online. It's at hopefulneighborhood.org backslash every gift. I'm reading through some of this criteria. Things like managing both tasks and people. Nope. Planning, organizing, directing, finance. Nope. There's a lot of nopes in there, but it sure is fun to see some things where maybe there's some intuition to say yes to in discovering spiritual gifts. One more time. This is pastor and author Don Everts. The book is Discover Your Gifts. You can text the word book to 877-933-2484 to be entered into a drawing for a giveaway of about four copies of this book and the workbook. Don, thanks so much for joining us this morning and have a great rest of the day. Thanks, Peter. Great to think with you about these things. Love it. We'll uh, take a short break and wrap up our show here for the 5th of July. Still time to text the word book into studio here at 877-933-2484. So many of you have already done to get into a drawing for a copy of this book, Discover Your Gifts. And it was a great way to spend the morning. I so appreciate the time with all of you as part of the Faith Radio family, all the texts and the comments and uh, there's just nothing like getting up together like this and fixing our eyes on Jesus, talking about things from a kingdom worldview. Paul Perot, just such a delight to be in studio with you, as always, too. Even if you do disparage my appreciation for hot dogs. <laughs> I do, indeed. I, I may have misrepresented you. I asked for your profound may? and thoughtful <laughs> forgiveness. Looking forward to the next time being with you on Mornings in Carmen. I'll be with you Thursday morning as part of Guest, and just uh, love what uh, what she does each and every day, bringing the mind of Jesus to the headlines. Have a great rest of the day, everybody. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.